Dustin's going to throw up a question on the screen that we're going to start with today. Have you ever sensed God calling you to do something surprising, something that may have even seemed at the time to be completely ridiculous? <laughs> um, curious, if you have something and something does come to mind, use that, uh, use the chat. Um, some things you might be able to share, um, others you might keep to yourself, but we're going to hold this question because we're going to come back to it um, at least two more times while we're looking um, at today's text. So this morning we're actually going to be talking about whales and worms and bushes, a mass conversion, and a disobedient Hebrew prophet. The book of Jonah in 20 minutes or less. No idea how this is even going to be possible, but we're going to try. <laughs> this story has captivated people of all ages with its bestseller-worthy plot, its satirical humor, its cast of characters. This story was even told by Talking Vegetables, and it made over $25 million at the box office in 2002. Anyone? Veggie Tales. <laughs> Does anybody remember the old Veggie Tales, Jonah? Some good stuff. By way of introduction, I just want to say a few things that are important to note up front about the story that we're about to get into. First of all, Jonah is not a book about a whale. Most of us remember the Sunday school story about a large whale swallowing up Jonah, spewing him onto some faraway beach. But the fish is mentioned in Jonah only twice, which is one more time than a sackcloth, by the way, 12 times less than God and 19 times less than the Lord. It's not a book about a whale. Secondly, we have to read Jonah with a little bit of a sense of humor. God uses humor to make a very serious point. And we could use a little humor today after the week that we've just survived. Jonah begrudgingly preaches a five-word sermon on judgment and destruction of the people of Nineveh. And the entire city of 120,000 people converted. So when people ask, was Jonah really in the belly of a whale? From now on, I think I'm going to say that that might actually be the most believable part of this story. Third, this story is about heart. It's about Jonah's heart, and it's also about the heart of God. In many ways, it is a historical account of a particular prophet named Jonah who lived approximately 550 years before the birth of Jesus. And so as we walk through this story, Jonah's heart that's filled with anger and hatred even, is going to be set side by side with the heart of God's compassion and love. And finally, it's a book that we are being invited to find ourselves in this story. And maybe the biggest mistake we can make when we read Jonah, which is similar to some other parts of scripture, is to think that we would never have made the same mistakes that he made. But this is a thoughtful and smart group of people. We know better than that. This morning, I'm going to be summarizing the first 
three chapters or so of Jonah's story. And then we'll read together the important conclusion when we get to the end. So the story begins with the word of the Lord given to Jonah by God. And here's what it says. Go at once to Nineveh, the great city, and cry out against her for their wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh, the Assyrian capital, was located in present-day northern Iraq. They were proud of killing Judeans. In a British museum in London, there's actually a work of ancient art depicting Ninevite soldiers impaling Hebrews with spears and then counting the disembodied heads of the dead. To an Israelite who heard the word Nineveh, it would have conjured up images of terrorism. And within one generation after Jonah the prophet, the Assyrians would conquer and destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. So the original hearers of the book of Jonah would also, like Jonah himself, despised these Ninevites. When God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh, all Jonah could hear was a death sentence. And so Jonah the prophet disobeyed, turned his back on God, and ran the other way to Tarshish. Now, we're going to put up the second part of the same question that we asked at the beginning. Think back to whatever that ridiculous thing that God calls you to. Did you do it? Why or why not? This story is going to be about God getting Jonah to the place that God needed him to be. Tarshish would have been the place that represented the farthest point in Jonah's known world, some 2,500 miles away from the city that God called him to. And so fleeing God's command, Jonah becomes the Bible's most famous runaway. He actually thought that if he went far enough away, he'd be able to escape God's presence. Jonah thinks that he could find this nice vacation town where God didn't own a rental, a place where God's rule didn't exist, a place where Jonah could just be left alone in, and at peace without this meddling God asking him to do crazy things. So Jonah gets on a boat. The boat he embarks on is full of people from different countries. They're representing the nations of the world. It's fascinating because these sailors recognize right away that the great storm that they enter into has some kind of meaning to it. They know this, but they don't know what the meaning is. They're terrified. They're certain that unless they can figure out the cause of the storm, they know that they're going to die. And so here's another contrasting moment in the story of Jonah. These people representing the many nations, they prayed. Each to their own, in their own unique way, they cry out to their gods for help. Here's the contrast. Jonah is asleep. Jonah didn't pray. Jonah didn't even help the sailors jettison the cargo to try to save their lives. And the captain of the ship is this man of integrity, perhaps a better man than Jonah. He discovers Jonah asleep. He has to wake him up. And in the Rob D version of the Bible, he says, wake up, you idiot. 
You've got to do something. We're all about to die. These sailors, they end up casting lots to see who's responsible for this great storm, and the lot rightly falls on Jonah. We see already the hand of God at work. The sea grows more and more stormy. Uh, Jonah suggests that they throw him overboard. But the sailors are actually too honorable. They're too decent for this. They don't want to harm Jonah. But they finally come to realize that Jonah is correct. The only way to stop the raging of the sea is to throw him overboard. And so they pick him up, imagine this moment, and they hurl him into the stormy seas. But God has these plans to get Jonah to the great city of Nineveh. So God rescues Jonah, appointing a large fish to save him. It's okay to laugh at this. We're supposed to laugh at this ridiculous turn of events. It's this nightmare story turned comedy. It's supposed to be funny. And so we put up the question part three. Think back to that ridiculous thing that God called you to. What did it take to move you toward obedience? What did it take to move you toward obedience? And I say, any large fish in that story. So Jonah is spewed up onto the beach of Nineveh. He now gets a second chance to do the right thing, and he begrudgingly accepts this. He preaches his five word sermon, think about this, his five word sermon of judgment and destruction. And then the big surprise is that when the king of Nineveh gets word of Jonah's sermon, he actually listened. This is amazing. This is the most amazing part of the story. He listened to Jonah's five word sermon. He implored his people to turn away from their evil ways. And he's hoping all the while, he's praying that God would relent and would change God's mind. And what does God do? God does relent. And Jonah becomes the most successful Hebrew prophet in history. He preaches destruction, five-word sermon, and 120,000 people get saved. This is amazing. The Hebrew prophets never had success like Jonah. The God whom scripture says is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness does not destroy Nineveh. You might want to believe that Jonah would have been overjoyed at his amazing success. <laughs> That's not the case. Here is the conclusion of the Jonah story. And I'm going to read from Jonah 4, 1 through 11. But this, the salvation of 120,000 Ninevites, was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That's why I fled to Tarshish from the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, 
for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And Jonah said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and it perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jonah, at this point in the story, is honestly probably bordering on severe depression. He would rather be dead than witness this kind of graciousness toward his enemies. So Jonah heads east. Now east in the Bible is your clue. It's symbolic always of the wrong way. Think east of Eden by Steinbeck. In his anger, he had become not only disobedient, Jonah had become inhospitable, unmerciful. But God doesn't grant Jonah his death wish. Because God not only wants to save the Ninevites, God is trying to save Jonah too. And so here the story approaches the heart of the problem. Jonah and God do not care about the same things. Their hearts are not aligned. Jonah doesn't care about the 120,000 lost people of Nineveh. But we see that God does. Jonah wants to destroy the great city and all of its people, and our merciful God wants to rescue and to save them. And so the often neglected question with the book of Jonah is this, what does it teach us about God? I'm going to finish with just a few observations. The first is that question that we've been putting up that God sometimes calls us to surprising, even ridiculous things like church planting for me. I did the same thing as Jonah when it came to starting Lightshine. It took for me more than a few giant fish to get me to obedience. 
The second thing is, despite our stubborn rebellion, what we see throughout this entire story is that God continues to journey with Jonah, with us even in our rebellion. And so we see God at work in this story, orchestrating everything all the way through from sailors to whales to worms and bushes, all working to get Jonah where God needed him to be. And finally, and by far the most important thing is just this extraordinary love that God has. We see that God loves Jonah and that God also loves the people that Jonah despised. There's redemption for both. The Lord referred to the Ninevites. This is, I think this is fascinating, by the name Adam, the generic word for human being. And of course, the name given to our first human parent, Adam. Each one of these 120,000 people is Adam, is a human being created in the divine image of God. God is reminding Jonah, God is reminding us today in this story that all humans are of inestimable worth, perhaps even especially the people that we have trouble loving, the people that we may even despise. And so the task of wisdom is always to be able to tell the right from the left, or right from wrong, or good from evil. And the Bible says the people of Nineveh, they did not know the way. They needed a Jonah to be a light, to, uh, to show them the right way. And instead, Jonah wants his enemies to get what he felt they deserved. But here we see, and we see this in other places in Scripture too, as important as justice is, love wins the day. And so maybe the parting question for us might be something like this. How do we emulate this kind of extraordinary love that we see in this story. And one thing we know for sure, this is not going to be an easy task. It wasn't for Jonah. We will have to consider some really difficult questions, like who are your Ninevites? To whom do you want to preach that five-word sermon of judgment and destruction? And then when we come up with our own list when like the next step would be to take the king of Nineveh as an example, which is crazy. I just don't even have time to talk about him. But what does he do when he hears this sermon? He actually repents and he asks his people to repent, right? We repent for our own lists of Ninevites in our own life, for the ways in which we too often get Jesus's way wrong and finally, we have to grapple with the most difficult question of all. Is it possible? Is it possible that God might be calling you to the seemingly ridiculous task of loving the wrong kinds of people, enemies even perhaps, into the kingdom of God? 
want to close with a quote from one of my modern day heroes, Father Greg Boyle. He wrote, Tattoos on the Heart, one of the better books I've read in my lifetime. And this is what Father Boyle writes, and we'll leave with this. Soon we imagine with God this circle of compassion. Then we imagine that no one is standing outside that circle. Moving ourselves closer to the margins so that the margins themselves will be erased. We stand there with those whose dignity has been denied. We locate ourselves with the poor and the powerless and the voiceless. At the edges, we join the easily despised and the readily left out. We stand with the demonized so that the demonizing will stop. We situate ourselves right next to the disposable so that the day will come when we stop throwing people away. That sounds like a heart that is aligned with the heart of God that we see in the story of Jonah. Friends, may this be so. Amen.